Hi, everyone. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It's great to have you with us today. Every time I get a little fuzzy on my history, I've got a good amount now of America's greatest history tellers on my phone call list. And this time, I needed to refresh my American history. So I turned to my friend Walter Borneman, author of American Spring, Lexington, Concord, and the Road to Revolution. If ever you want a great American history lesson, he's a writer of numerous books on a lot of different subjects and a fantastic history teacher. I hope you'll enjoy the following interview as much as I did. Thanks for being with us. Mark. Hello, Walter. How you doing? I am doing good, John. Okay, can I, should I turn my video on for you? Yeah, man, got to see you. Hey, here I am. I'm telling you, this Skype. I, I don't. I don't know it as well as you. I'm used to these Zoom calls, but yeah. in any event, I think we're good. Uh, Zoom's just a bunch of upstarts. You know that. Yeah, I know. I, we we should have sold our stock at about four hundred, right? I don't know what it's down to <laughs> yeah. now. But. Yeah, I heard about that. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna. Well, I'm gonna thanks, give you a little. Thanks, go ahead. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, man, great. It's good to have you back on with us. Uh, yeah. Well, I wasn't sure if you would go with uh, American Spring, but uh, it's just a personal thing with me. I am not an expert in early American history, and this is something I'd really like to get your take on. Yeah, I should I save this that, for the interview. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, well, let's save it for the interview. But that, but that, that would be great. So, when, whenever you're ready, and remind me, you do a little editing if necessary of this, right? Yes, this isn't live. Thank God, or I'd be in trouble already. So. All right, all right, all right. That's that's fair enough. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. There are more unsung heroes in the early days of the American Revolution than in any other time of our nation's history. People of all colors, sizes, shapes, and backgrounds, men and women, and young adults, and nobody tells their story of their fight for freedom better than historian and accomplished author Walter Brenneman in his book, American Spring. There are many great reviews out there on this book, but I like this one the best. It reads, If the devil's in the details, then this is a devilishly good book. Borneman fills in the oft-told story of the early days of the Revolution, but unlike others, he takes time to discuss early encounters at Salem, Portsmouth, and other places. He tells of John Hancock's beginnings, which makes Hancock less of a cardboard character. Going back to the sources, he questions some of the repeated wisdom. And Borneman's writing was easy to digest, like a bag of potato chips. Along with Rick Atkinson's The British Are Coming, American Spring rekindled my interest in the year 1775. I wholly agree with that review, Walter, and it's great to have you with us today to discuss your book, American Spring. Well, thanks, John. It's, it's good to be with you again. The early days of the American Revolution, we've all gotten inundated with it to some degree in history class, in school, and then beyond that, depending on what our level of reading is. It's an area, though, where I'm constantly finding new things. Knowing the way that you author a book and the way that you bring in a lot of gems and untold stories, uh, I really wanted to get in touch with you to have you cover this book with us, with our listeners. So uh, if you wouldn't mind... How about giving us a story about what inspired you to do this particular story, and what are some of the gems that you pulled out of American history? Well, I'm, I'm glad to do that. And, you know, I think I found that the first six months of 1775 were really a very critical period. It's, it's a tenuous tipping point that 
quite frankly, could could have gone either way. And I think when even today you talk about the the different uh, segments and the, and the way our society might be um, polarized politically, that was certainly true in 1775. There are about a third of of the population, which remember at that point in the colonies we're talking about in, in including uh, slaves, about three million people. So it's a, a small number of people that that we're we're talking about compared to today. But roughly about a third of those are uh, what you would call let's call them rebels first. And we can talk a little bit more as we go through here, John, about when rebels become patriots in <laughs> retrospect. But they were definitely rebels that include, as you suggest, people like John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and, and Adams' cousin, cousin John, and of course his, his wife Abigail. There's another third of the population that really are intensely loyal to the King of England. They're proud to be British subjects. They, they really can't imagine any other other form of government. And then there's this pretty wide third in the middle. They could go either way. Uh, they're not sure. And sometimes they're caught in the crossfire between the rebels slash patriots on, on one hand and the um, loyalists on, on the other. And I think what happens in 1775, I'm going to suggest to you that it's, it's also a period of time where events move very, very quickly. And we can talk about some specifics of that. But, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, of my kids in particular who it's like, History, oh, boring. History seems to, to take uh, glacial speed. But I would suggest to you that the spring of, of 1775 is a period of American history really in about 90 days. You know, the, the subtitle of my book is Lexington Concord and the Road to Revolution. Well, between Lexington and Concord in April of 1775 and the Battle of Bunker Hill, which is really a hugely pitched battle in June. That 90 days, uh, things move very quickly and the American colonies are indeed on on, on their way toward uh, revol outright revolution and, and eventually, of course, uh, freedom and a new nation. Yeah, yeah, it was an incredible time. What basically started things off? What was the biggest tipping point that got things going for the rebels and for the revolution? Well, you know, one of my previous books was on the French and Indian War, a period that goes from 1754 to uh, 1763. And a lot of the seeds of revolution are really sown in that war. That war has the, the British Empire really defeating the French, expelling them from North America. And of course, the Native Americans are the real losers in that particular war, which are increasingly forced westward over the Appalachians. But the British Crown decides that they're going to draw a line along the crest of the Appalachian Mountains and basically reserve land to the west for Native Americans. Colonists don't like that. 
People like uh, George Washington have been out there on, on the Ohio frontier since 1754. And there's this land expansion that the colonists feel that they're really being prohibited from and A lot from of the Scotch-Irish were in the middle of that they push, were, right? Exactly. And and uh, they they generally, the colonists, feel that in terms of supporting Great Britain in its war against uh, France, that they should be given some, some of the fruits of, of that victory and their labors by being able to claim land west of the Appalachians. Well, so that's that's one issue of in terms of of potential war. Uh, they're denied these land claims. The second thing, of course, the British Crown, in addition to going ahead and denying uh, colonists' uh, land claims west of the mountains, is actually then taxing with with that famous phrase without representation, taxing the colonists at all levels including the famous tea tax, taxing them at all levels in terms of how they're going to pay for the, the debts of the war. So there's great taxation, there's, there's no land, and as unrest builds up, there's also th this idea, not just in terms of, of direct taxation, but British troops are being quartered in, in colonial homes, and colonists are being asked to support the, the broader aims of, of the British Empire that way as well. So all of those issues really begin to simmer through the early 1700s, uh, 1770s, I should say, and and really come to fruition uh, in in 1774. The Boston Tea Party is is the prior December in December of 1773, but by December of 1774, which is where I re I really begin the book and the story, there's there's considerable friction, and we all know about Paul Revere and his famous ride of April of 75. But I begin my book with a story about Paul Revere riding in a cold, blustery night uh, in December of 1774, riding from Boston to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to warn colonials there that the British are about to seize um, stores of, of gunpowder and ammunition that in, in theory probably belonged to the crown because the crown had various armories spread throughout the colonies. But as more and more colonists made feelings of, of taking up arms and, and being in, in open rebellion, the British under um, General Gage were, were really trying to go ahead and control those those stores. So Revere rides in, in the December of, of 74 and warns colonists in New, in New Hampshire, who then go ahead and, and seize those stores for, for themselves. And of course, by, by the following spring then, uh, we've got another ride where, where he warns specifically Hancock and Samuel Adams that, hey, the British are marching on Lexington and Concord not only to seize gunpowder and ammunition and cannon from, from the rebels, but also really to, to flat out capture who they see as the two main leaders of, of rebellion, Hancock and Adams. Now, Paul Revere was pretty much the sung hero of that time and of delivering that message. Who are some of the unsung heroes who took that ride as well? I know there was one that was named Dawes, and wasn't there another one who rode all the way from uh, Connecticut or Massachusetts to New Jersey? 
Oh, I think you're, boy, yes, I think the Connecticut to New Jersey ride may be in terms of spreading the message yes. afterwards. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking, John, on who that is at the moment. But part of the, what the colonists really tried to do, the rebel faction, after Lexington and Concord is spread the word. And to your point, that ride really gets the message down the, um, the postal road, if, if you will, both going north uh, in, into New Hampshire, but principally down into the rest of the colonies and spread the word of, of what's happened. Because, of course, what Massachusetts hopes, and it takes really a pretty short period of time, for Virginia and the other colonies to say via the Second Continental Congress, we're going to support you, Massachusetts, and in varying degrees, we're we're going to rally to the, to that cause. Who were some of your favorite unsung heroes in the story? Well, you know, some of my uh, unsung heroes. Uh, one of them would have to be uh, Joseph Warren. Now, now his name is not necessarily unknown. But he's a 33-year-old doctor, and it's kind of interesting. He's the third piece of the triumvirate in terms of rebel leadership in Massachusetts, along with Hancock and Adams. And I've, I've argued, at least parenthetically in, in my book, that had he lived, he might well have been in the hierarchy that might have even seen him president. Of, of a young United States at some point. But for some reason, he decides to ride to the sound of the guns, and this is by now June, uh, and the Battle of Bunker Hill. But uh, Warren is killed uh, very tragically in the final British assault on, on Bunker Hill. And he certainly didn't need to be there, but I think there, there are a number of folks who felt the need to be there from a patriotic standpoint, from a carrying the flag standpoint, and and quite frankly, again, in, in this smaller mix, John, of of numbers of, of population, the real leaders led from the front. And I think Joseph Warren decided um, that he, he needed to lead from the front, which is what put him in, at, at Bunker Hill uh, that, that particular morning. You know, a couple of other uh, heroes or heroines that I, I would point out in, in this, Mercy uh, Warren, um, no, re no relation to um, uh, Joseph, nonetheless uh, was someone who had written and she has to write anonymously because in that era, a woman publishing in, in the local press simply wasn't done. But she writes uh, a number of, of articles uh, under a, a, a pen name called The Group. And they're certainly talking about uh, not only freedom from Great Britain, but also writes for a number of people, uh, segments of the population, clearly women as, as well as, as men. And her mentor, I think it's safe to say, is Abigail Adams, John's, John's wife. So Mercy Otis Warren is, is someone who, who really uh, steps up as, as a woman in that period of time and, and makes a good case for wider equality. 
And let me just mention one other hero and and then kind of go back to the idea of what's accomplished and what's not accomplished in, in terms of segments of the, of the population. Another hero would have to be uh, Prince uh, is his first name and Estabrook is his last name. He's an African-American, about 50 years old at the time. And he's someone who's, um, you know, initially been been uh, a servant and he ends up on Lexington Green standing side by side. He's a longtime Minuteman. He ends up standing side by side with with others on Lexington Green and, and, and he's wounded. But in terms of both Mercy Otis Warren and Prince Estabrook, the stories I tried to tell really broadened, uh, I hope, the, the story of those six months well beyond kind of the stereotypes of, of white Anglo-Saxon uh, Protestant males. And I guess to my point of wanting to broaden the story and the great what if uh, at at the end of the revolution, if if there'd been a broader enfranchisement of not only women but African Americans, how different our our country might have been. The people who are fighting for liberty and at that point saying they need more representation are basically white uh, landowners and. The, the fact that there are a number of people, including Abigail Adams, who famously writes a letter to her husband, John, uh, as part of the, the, the debate in the Continental Congress, don't forget the women, you know, let's give some, some, some rights to women. And it's, it's relatively incredible in the sweep of American history that it takes 150 years for a woman to be given the, 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 the right to vote nationally. And of course, from slavery, uh, if in fact the Continental Congress had dealt with at least a much smaller number of, of slaves than, than later by the time of the, the Civil War and made some kind of arrangement or basically outlawed slavery and, and put an end to it right, right then and there in the 1770s, you know, my goodness, how different the history of this country might have been because because again you know we we look to the fact that not only did we have to fight a, a civil war o over that but it's 1865 before slavery's really uh, outlawed and we all know that simply out outlawing that hasn't uh, e immediately at, at that point uh, done anything in terms of getting rid of all of the continuing uh, inequalities and inequities that quite frankly still continue at some level to, to, to this day. So those are, those are kind of two interesting what ifs as I've tried to tell and put personalities on each of those issues, but in terms of, of, of rights of women and, and Native American, or uh, African Americans, pardon me. We'll return with our interview with Walter Borneman, author of American Spring, and many other bestsellers as well, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to Walter Borneman and American Spring, the story of Lexington, Concord, and the road to revolution. I'd like you to describe the part of your book, I'm going to call it Shots Fired, where the shot heard round the world is first fired and how that changed uh, the mood on both sides, and then progress, if you will, to the different battles. 
in that area? Well, it's kind of interesting. You know, there's there's a long story about who fired the first shot. And the, the short answer is we don't really know. There are, there are a number of, of suspects, but let me paint the picture for you. On, on the morning of April 19th on Lexington Green, the British troops are marching up the road to Lexington. And they come to a fork in the road where the meeting house is at, at Lexington. Uh, they've been warned by Paul Revere. They've, they've heard the, the, the drum beats of the advancing troops. And there are roughly about 90 militiamen that are spread out uh, across Lexington Green. And Lexington Green is, is really more of a triangle. So think of the British marching up to the meeting house at, at the point of the triangle and the, uh, the the colonial troops, the the Minutemen, are, are spread out across the top of the green. Well, there, there, there's a split there on the triangle and, and a road junction. The right fork kind of goes up toward beyond the meeting house and into some farms beyond Lexington. The left fork, where they're really trying to get to, the British, to go to Concord to seize the, uh, the, the munitions and things, is the left fork. Well, for whatever reason, the first three or four companies of British regulars move and take the right-hand fork away from Concord. Well, the British commanders suddenly realized, no, 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 we're going the wrong way. You got to take the left-hand fork. So the remaining part of the troops march left. But now what you've got the, the Minutemen were told by their leader, John Parker, don't fire a shot, just let the British wa uh, march by. We're going to see what happens in, in this regard. But now suddenly, in terms of, instead of the entire column of British regulars marching past on the left-hand road, we've got about a third of the command moving right and the rest of them moving left. What does it look like? It looks like there's this huge pincer movement that the, the British are going to surround and, and uh, attack the Minutemen. Well, at some point, then, the troops that are going the wrong way turn left and move across the field, again, looking like they're going to try and entrap the um, Minutemen. Well, there are a number of officers, half a dozen or so British officers who ride forward on horseback. They try to get everybody on the on the same road. What happens? Shot rings out. We're not sure who, who fired it. Uh, it doesn't seem like it was one of the regular troops. It doesn't seem that it was one of the Minutemen. It could have been a bystander uh, trying to provoke something. It could have been a shot by accident. I go into, in, in my book, a fairly detailed account of what ifs. It might well have been an officer named Sutherland, one of the British troops who either discharged his pistol accidentally, perhaps on purpose, firing it in, in the air to get the attention of the troops. Hey, get back in, in rank and file. We're moving on to Concord. We don't want any action here. Well, of course, what happens is with that one shot fired, there, there are full volleys that, that are fired on, on the British side. The, the Minutemen respond. There are about a dozen killed and wounded at, at that point on Lexington Green. The British column marches on, and I would suggest to you that there's still a period of time that things might have been okay. It's not full-blown warfare yet. 
but it, it, it could have been an incident uh, much like the Boston Massacre uh, exchange a few years back. But the British column moves on to Concord. They go ahead and basically seize uh, munitions. They're marching back to Concord. They have this uh, scene at the Old North Bridge. And there is increasingly organized resistance. And there are shots fired. And by the time the British column moves back toward Boston, and there's this great scene that the British commander knows they're in trouble because they're starting to get all kinds of guerrilla actions, really almost at a company by company level. You got to remember, there, there, there's not a whole lot of unified uh, command and control at, at this point. So they're kind of taking pot shots at the column, and there's reinforcements that are sent uh, arriving about the time of, of and, and location of, of Lexington that kind of are the relief column. But there really is a continuing sniping and pitched battle that, that occurs during the retreat. And if there is any tipping point, I would suggest to you that that late afternoon of Lexington and Concord really goes from being a mere incident and an erratic exchange of gunfire to a point that it is really pitched and open warfare. And during those 60 days between Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, when Bunker Hill is fortified and General Gage and the British seek to throw Joseph Warren and, and his colonials off Bunker Hill, it's really all-out all warfare at, at some particular point. How many men were lost at Bunker Hill? I think casualties at Bunker Hill have to, have to be in, 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 the, in the several hundred. And there are a number of, of casualties on, on, on the British side as, as, as well. I guess important point to say, coming back to the theme of, of how quickly history really moves, um, I, you know, I, I can't understate the importance of, of maybe the story of, of those 60 days. And I, I'd suggest to you, John, that there maybe there, there are three things that are key ingredients of a revolution and how a revolution becomes successful. And I'd suggest their publicity, money, and an army. And to our point earlier in terms of, of spreading the story, as soon as the retreat from Concord is over, the British hunker down in Boston and slowly but surely uh, American militiamen and colonials begin to encircle Boston. But almost immediately, there is a publicity element to this that the rebels reach out to who I'm going to term the moderates. In other words, that big third of undecided folks, not only in the colonies, but also in England. There are some undecided folks in England about what they're going to do. And they really tell the story and put the spin on publicity that, look, you know, the, the British really attacked, they, they seized munitions, they did this and that, they were clearly the aggressors. We were simply trying to protect and, and take care of, of home and, and hearth. 
So there's this, this great publicity element in that regard. Secondly, the Continental Congress then goes into the session, the Second Continental Congress, and the question of money comes up. And Congress empowers the Philadelphia delegates to borrow money from local banks for the purchase of gunpowder for a Continental Army. And they do that with $2 million, doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but it's $2 million in 1775 in bills of credit due in seven years. And get this point, guaranteed by all the colonies in proportion to population. Now, doesn't that kind of sound like what's going to happen in terms of the Constitution uh, 13, 14 years out? In, in, in proportion to population, they borrow funds and they get gunpowder for uh, an army. And of course, the, the third thing is that uh, emboldened by requests from particularly New York and, and of course Massachusetts, there are a number of companies of riflemen. I think I think 10 companies of riflemen in the beginning. Again, it doesn't seem like a huge number of troops because it may be about a, about 150 men per company. But none, nonetheless, there are companies of riflemen from Pennsylvania, Maryland and Virginia that by the time they're done, they number about 800 to 1000 men who are going to join colonial militias from Massachusetts and converge on on Boston. And of course, with an army, who are you going to lead the army? There are a number of folks who really are desirous of leading that force. Joseph Warren is dead at Bunker Hill. John Hancock kind of thinks, well, you know, I should be doing it. He's, he's a really rich and famous merchant. Uh, he, he's led the political side of this. But really, except for a little bit of militia training, he basically has zero. Um, he basically has, has zero. Um, military leadership experience. Military, yeah, thank you. He basically has zero military leadership in terms mm -hmm. of, of, of being able to do that. So who should show up at the Continental Congress in his uh, uniform from Virginia mm -hmm. in the uh, French and Indian War than, than George Washington? And of course, George Washington becomes uh, the leader of, of the Continental Army at that point. So it's kind of interesting. Again, in roughly a month's time, it's done. The publicity has been spread. There's been a commitment to an army, money to back it up, and, and a commander made. And the next day, this is in late June, uh, after, after Bunker Hill, George Washington ar arrives with the Continental Army out, out outside of Boston. So it's, I guess, the final thing I'd say about how that relates to today. When this book initially came out, it was 2014. What was happening in Ukraine in 2014? Hmm. Very suddenly, Russia was invading and taking over Crimea. Right. I was out there on the book circuit saying that, my goodness, uh, history sometimes seems to stand stock still, but then when it moves, it moves very, very quickly. Yes. And and Crimea uh, was taken over. And of course, then there was was a lull un until a, a year ago. And we all know where we are today with Russia and, and Ukraine. But how that relates back to the American Revolution 
again, is this this very quick, it seems to me, period of time when things move at a level of publicity, money, and army very quickly. Now, we can go back and talk about more of, of the details of, of that spring, but let me, let me just suggest that then things really bogged down. I mean, there are occasional colonial victories, like uh, at the Battle of, of Trenton with, with, with Washington crossing the, the Delaware. Um, there are certainly some, some very, very low periods of time, like Valley Forge. And it's really not until the French and uh, Lafayette arrive that Washington's able to prevail at, at Yorktown and basically win the American Revolution. Uh, Walter, when do rebels become patriots? Well, that's a good question, John, because the rebels really are rebels at the point of being totally against uh, what's going on with the British crown. And there are loyalists who are very, very um, uh, critical in terms of wanting to maintain loyalties to the crown. And when do rebels become patriots? They've been able to become patriots in, in retrospect because eventually they won the American Revolution. Had they not won, had the British prevailed, they likely would have continued to be characterized as rebels. Or hung rebels. Yes. And as far as going ahead and saying, okay, the rebels are now really patriots, and even taking that one step further, the question that I've, I've asked in, in some book groups around and discussions in, and everything is not only when do rebels make that move to become patriots, but when do the patriots really prevail? When is the American Revolution? truly successful that's a good question well and and let me let me just throw out some some ideas for you because there i don't know that there's any any firm answer john but you know there there there's clearly some some possibilities we talk about the fact that 1776 declaration of independence still pretty sketchy then boy boy it's it's still tenuous um, you know, it's it's undecided at, at that point. Maybe uh, 1787, when after the Articles of, of Confederation, the Constitution is really slowly but surely adopted and ratified. Um, it might well be 1789, when George Washington is inaugurated as the first president of the United States. But I'm going to suggest to you, and it's, it's, it's pure, purely my thought, because like I say, I'm not sure there's, there's a right answer to this. But I think that perhaps the American Revolution is truly successful in 1797, when George Washington not is inaugurated the first time or the second time, but when he declines to run again, when he declines to stay on as president, when he steps down, and by the way, there is at that point, it's no slam dunk, there is a contested election between John Adams as a Federalist 
and Thomas Jefferson as as a Republican. Uh, Adams prevails in 1996 and uh, is inaugurated in, in 1797. And then there's going to be an equally contested election between Adams and Jefferson again, where Jefferson finally prevails in, in 1800. So my point is, is that democracy prevailed. The system that the founders laid out worked. And again, somewhat incredibly, we can fast forward to events today that are, are not nearly uh, that clear cut, events that we certainly thought were, were clear cut over, over a 250 year period of time. But I'd suggest to you Washington stepping down and putting in place the mechanism of free and independent elections, not always nice, not always totally accepted, but it did at the end of the day, the rule of law and the constitution did prevail. So that's that's my answer to when is the American Revolution successful? I'm gonna take a shot at answering when the rebels become patriots. Sure. At the beginning of the revolution, the cause of freedom was understood well by a few, and they tried to disseminate that information. The guys who got it fought for them. In the eyes of the British, they became rebels. It wasn't until the British atrocities started, I think, and when families went up against families, families were split by this whole thing. Some were Tories, some were Whigs, and the colonies became a battleground of, of ideas. Like you said at the top, a lot of people were comfortable with the relationship with, with England. They wanted an England who could care for them, who could protect their shipping, who could provide them with a path to, to wealth and a path to security and a path to safety. I mean, it was pretty hard. Uh, it was sold to them pretty well in that respect. And it seems like that with the, the wealthiest stayed in the Tory camp, in the, in the British camp. I think, they, I think the, the rebels, the guys who really started the fight, the guys who picked up their muskets, the guys who fought, the guys who, who died, they were the rebels. But when the, when the concept started to grow of what this freedom was all about and what it was going to be like living under a foreign king really started to reach people's minds, then they became patriots. It's no great concept, but I think it was a slow, slow thing. And when Saratoga happened. Saratoga, the, our victory at Saratoga really changed a lot of minds, not only in this country, but, but in Europe as well, as to just what the outcome might be. And for the first time, people saw that flame burning a little brighter, and they said, you know, we've got a shot here. And I think a lot of the people who were moderates, who were on the line, when, when Saratoga happened, and we won that pretty decisively, they said, you know what, these guys have a chance. I think I'm going to go on that side. And that started bringing a lot of people over to the Patriot cause. Well, I think that's absolutely all all true and, and correct. Certainly that big middle third uh, be, tips uh, slowly but surely, almost irrevocably, uh, to the rebel slash Patriot cause. And you mentioned Saratoga. Saratoga in 1777 is not just an American victory, it, it's a massive defeat. The, the surrender of, of Burgoyne's entire army 
north of, of, of New York that was supposed to cut the colonies in two. And when that happens, that not only gets uh, attention from those who remain undecided, but also, as, as you suggest correctly, uh, from France. And France uh, having, remember, because <laughs> we talked about the French and Indian War and, and where France has basically been expelled from, from North America, uh, France is really going to continue to battle all the way through the Napo Napoleonic Wars with uh, Great Britain, that France is, is ready to say, okay, we're gonna weigh in on the, on the side of the, uh, the young American colonies and, 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 and stick it to the British, uh, particularly since we lost uh, out in, in, in the, not only the French and Indian War in North America, but the Seven Years' War in, in all of uh, Europe and, and the world. I guess the only other thing I'd say is that I agree with you in terms of the loyalists and the uh, rebels, uh, again, turning patriots, if you will, how bitter it becomes in terms of really uh, civil war. Uh, families fighting against one another, uh, certainly neighbors fighting against one another. And this happens not only in Massachusetts, but particularly in areas of New York and Pennsylvania, and probably most bitterly in the Carolinas and the period where Lord Cornwallis captures Charleston, 1780. We've got the great stories uh, of, the, of the Swamp Fox, Francis Marion, and then eventually Cornwallis moving north into North Carolina and eventually hunkering down at, at, at Yorktown. So I, I, I've got to tell you one story that, that I have frequently told is, as, as part of this doesn't necessarily, I guess it doesn't appear in the book, but in, in terms of discussions and all, I have an ancestor, um, Amos Parker on my mother's side, who was actually at uh, Yorktown. And supposedly, anecdotally, as the story goes, uh, I, I think with pretty good evidence, was involved with an advance guard for Lafayette and went ahead and shot down a sniper who might well have taken out a very young uh, Marquis de Lafayette at, at that point. So that's, that's my connection. Amos, Amos Parker, uh, not the Parker of Lexington Green, but the Parker of Yorktown connected to uh, the American Revolution. Yeah, there was, another, there was another sniper who claimed to have his sights on Washington. But he held he held back for a couple of seconds, and then Washington turned, got busy doing something else. That was a brandy wine. So, yes, in, indeed. Sometimes it's it's amazing. Again, a, a relatively small number of troops, but uh, engaged like that, and 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 where people, uh, you know, but but for one shot, the the entire history of the country could be changed. That certainly happened again. It was a story I told about uh, Joseph Warren and Bunker Hill. So. Could it could it could have been different in in that regard? There's one additional story that I might tell in terms of Margaret Kemble Gage. She's General Gage's wife, and uh, she's born uh, in in the colonies. Yet she's married to the commander in chief of of British forces, and it's sort of become um, popular, shall we say? 
to suggest that somehow she leaked the news. And we're not 100% sure how she might have even come up with the news, but that she leaked the news of the British attack at Lexington and Concord and went on to warn the rebels of that. Now, I have done a fair amount of research and I've also done a fair amount of supporting Margaret Kemble Gage and I think it makes a great story, but I just don't think it's accurate. I think that uh, conflicted though she was in terms of her American upbringing and uh, part of her family being in New Jersey, nonetheless, she's married to General Gage. Their kids are being educated in England. After this all happens, I think they have like nine kids together, seven before 1775 and three after. She, st she stays with the general. They, they have these two additional children. She's the executor of his estate. She's a widow and survives him without marrying for some 25 years. I simply don't think that Margaret Kemble Gage is any kind of, uh, of traitor uh, to the British cause or overly supportive of, of the American uh, patriot cause, if you will. So I just say, John, that sometimes the best stories are not necessarily true stories. And um, I, I, I continue to be Margaret uh, Gage's champion in, in that regard. <laughs> I think you've already answered this question at the very top, but I'm going to ask it of you anyway. Uh, you're sitting in your office phone call rings, and it's Hollywood, Paramount Pictures, and they want to pick up rights to American Spring, and they're going to give you a choice of how you'd like to open the film. What scene would you use to open the film? I would say to Hollywood, bring it on. I'm, I'm more than, than willing to do that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would have to say that, that the compelling opening is indeed the way I, I open the book in terms of I can see Paul Revere galloping along through this uh, uh, snowstorm, um, muddy roads and, and everything else. And suddenly it, it, it dawns that he's uh, arriving in Portsmouth to uh, uh, warn those folks in December of 1774, and it's not quite yet April of, of, of 1775. I think that would be a, a compelling little cameo to open and then be able to, uh, to cut back to probably John Adams and um, Samuel Adams and John Hancock sitting around the Green Dragon Tavern in Boston saying, okay, you know, what, what are we going to do with these letters of, of correspondence? How, how are we going to warn uh, the Minutemen companies, uh, etc.? Walter Boardman, thank you so much for bringing us American Spring. And obviously American Spring can be found at all the great booksellers. And how can people get in touch with you? Uh, they can get in touch with me uh, online through my website, which is... Um, WalterBorneman.net and see about more of my books and my email addresses on there, etc. So always glad to chat or follow up with, with anything. I enjoy American history. And, and the number of books you've written, the number of great award-winning books that you've written are a testament to that. Thank you so much for all you do and all the history that you brought us. Thank you. Thanks for having me, John.